Good morning. My name is Aaron, and I will be reading today's passage from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved for various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than that of gold, perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. Well, I got to tell you, it is absolutely weird to be doing a, an Easter service in an empty auditorium with just a handful of people helping out uh, making this happen. You know, normally, normally every Easter, people all over the world flock to churches. On that one Sunday, church attendance jumps to 40, even 50% or more. You know, normally here in our auditorium, we pack this place out wall to wall and break all of the fire codes. You know, some churches add two or three more services just to handle everybody. This year is different. This year, churches can't gather together in person for an Easter service. That's been shut down, obviously, for safety reasons. And I bet that the evil one thinks he got away with pulling a fast one. But here's the thing. Here's, here's what I believe. Here's my, it's more than a hunch. As I watch um, churches respond to this curveball, and I see churches adapt around the world, I think more people, I think more people will hear the good news of Jesus today than any other day in history. And I think that more people will respond to the good news of Jesus and become followers of Jesus as a result of today, more so than any other time in history. This Easter, what the evil one meant for evil, God will use for good. Amen? So, what is the big deal about Easter? Well, the big deal about Easter is that it has everything to do with hope. It has everything to do with hope. You can see that around the globe, our world is overwhelmed by problems, whether it's the coronavirus or people exploiting the fear of death through the coronavirus. Um, there's oppression, there's self-righteousness, there's loneliness, there is judgmentalism, there is cancer, there's terrorism, hunger, and no easy solutions to fix it all. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe 
you lost a loved one. Maybe you're crushed by debt or a strained relationship. People around the world are filled with hopelessness. But when we celebrate on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that the tomb is empty. We celebrate that Jesus is risen. We celebrate that, that there is hope for you and for me and for the world. And this is not some vague, superstitious, keep-your-fingers-crossed kind of a Pollyanna hope. It is a sure and certain hope. It is not wishful thinking. It is a promise. It is a hope that you can count on because it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a living hope. Now, what is it exactly that we're all hoping for? Well, we are hoping that the deepest longings of our heart will be fulfilled. And what are our deepest longings? Well, I think that our deepest longings can be boiled down to significance, satisfaction, and security. In our passage of scripture, Peter tells us that faith in Jesus, that faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, that is what fulfills your deepest longings and that you can have it and you can experience it today. Not complete. When you know that promise, you can rejoice. This living hope, it endures beyond the grave. Jesus has triumphed over death. This is a living hope. So, Peter says that what we receive from Jesus is so powerful that we can rejoice even in suffering because Jesus' resurrection gives us what we really need. First, we see that it gives you true significance. And we're going to see that in a bit in verse 3. Now, here's what I know. I, I don't care who you are. We all long for significance. We, we long for our lives to matter. We long for our lives to count and to have value. Every single one of us looks to something to make us significant. Whether you're rich or poor or whatever station in life, you will either look to your work or, or to your family or to your achievements or look to approval or appearance or, or whatever to get significance. And here's the deal. Whatever you put your hope in will control you. Whatever you put your hope in will control you. It'll control your heart, your desires, your life, how you live your life. Whatever you look to for significance will drive you to get what you want. You'll get anxious when it seems like it's slipping through your fingers. You'll get angry if somebody takes it from you or gets in your way. Depressed if you lose it and empty if you get it. And whatever it is, it cannot deliver. It, it cannot deliver. And that's proven to be true over and over and over again, but we keep trying. 
See, when you get it, if you do, you're happy for about a minute. And you exhaust yourself to hold on to that happiness or, or you exhaust yourself to get it back. But anything you look to in this world to give you significance will be eventually devoured by the grave. It is not true significance. It is not living significance. But God gives you, God gives you a true significance. Do you see what verse 3 says? It says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read that again. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, other translations will, will use the words new birth. And new birth gives you a new identity. And your new identity is child of God. That is who you are. That right there is true significance. You know, while the Bible does teach that everyone is a creation of God, it's, it's only those who experience this new birth, those who experience an awakening to the resurrection of Jesus that become the children of God. I mean, this makes all the difference in the world when you wake up to that, when you, when you wake up to your new identity. Everything changes. I mean, imagine waking up tomorrow morning in a palace, a beautiful, uh, uh, spectacular, magnificent palace. Uh, you wake up to a, a world where you are part of a royal dynasty, right? And people bow to you and they call you prince or they call you princess. And, and everything that is accessible to royalty is now ex accessible to you. I mean, imagine how amazing that would be. How that would change everything. But I'm telling you, being a child of God is infinitely better. I mean, there's no comparison. I mean, do you have any idea who you are? Through his resurrection, Jesus shares his sonship with you. Through his resurrection, Jesus says that you can pray like this, our Father in heaven. See, through his resurrection, Jesus brings you into the Father's presence and, and guarantees that every time you go to the Father, every time you go to God the Father, he will welcome you with open arms. And he will have a smile on his face, and it's all because of Jesus' resurrection. Your identity is child of God better than any identity you could ever achieve or receive anywhere else. Okay, so what difference does this make here today in the real world? Well, let me get, let me get personal, all right? You know, 
starting at a very young age, as early as I can remember, I felt this oppression from what I would demand, I'd feel this pressure and oppression from what I would demand of myself, but then not be able to pull off. And, And I still wrestle with that. But at times, when these things could be at their most discouraging, sometimes, by God's grace, I remember that I am God's son. It's amazing how easy it is to forget that. But every now and then, he reminds me of who I am, that I am his son. I think it helps when I think of how much I love my two kids. My son, Dakota, my daughter, Victoria, we also call her Shay. You should see a photo there of them. They're a lot bigger now. It's an old photo, but it's one of my favorites. Now, of course, I would celebrate with them when they learned to walk or ride a bike or learn to drive a stick shift or, or when they would do something kind for someone, even someone that they didn't know, or, or when they would help me comfort and care for my wife, Shannon, when she was not feeling well. But I don't love them just because they perform for me. I love them because they're my kids. I love my kids because they're my kids. I would even love my kids even when they were just totally disobedient. I mean, they might not think so, but I do. I love them so much. And I'm proud of the young adults that they have become. No matter what, I love them because they're my kids. Now, if I am like that as a flawed and messed up father, how much more loving is my heavenly father? He, he does not, God the Father does not love you because you perform for him. Your identity and, and your significance comes from being his son or his daughter. Now, what difference would that make if you got that? If you could hold that in your mind and in your heart, if you can rest in the fact that your heavenly Father who created the universe and holds it all together and is renewing all things, what difference would it make? How would you be able to rest knowing that this heavenly Father, God Almighty, delights in you? He doesn't love you because it's God and it's his job. He delights in you because you are his son or daughter. And you know what? Nothing's going to change his opinion of you. And you know why? Because it doesn't depend on you. Thank God it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Now for me, it could be easy for me to, to fall into the trap of, of putting my hope for significance in my performance as a pastor or a husband or a father, right? And when that happens, I lose my joy. But I've noticed that I grow in joy 
when I remember that my significance does not depend on my performance. My significance depends on Jesus's performance. Jesus, who was perfect, God the Son. And I want you to know it's the same for you. It's the same for you. Jesus lived for you and Jesus died for you and through his resurrection, he gave you a new identity. And that's what verse three really is referring to. You are a child of God and absolutely nothing compares to that. There is nothing more significant than that. Even death, even death can only uh, make your true significance in Christ a fuller experience. Nothing can take it away from you. This is a living hope. So number one, through Jesus' resurrection, you have true significance. Second, through Jesus' resurrection, you have true satisfaction. We'll see that in a bit in verse four. You know, every single one of us, every single one of us, has a deep longing for satisfaction. It looks different from person to person, but every single one of us has a deep longing for satisfaction. We want fulfillment, or we want comfort, we want pleasure. And like significance, if we put our hope in someone or something to satisfy us, it'll mess us up. I mean, but we do it all the time. And so we'll either look to, to sex or vacations or a special person or sports or hobbies or movies or food or drink or, or a lazy boy chair and a 144-inch flat-screen TV. Now, those are all good things, right? But like significance, whatever you put your hope in for your satisfaction those things will control your life. Those things will shape your relationship with other people and your relationship with God. Ultimately, those things cannot deliver what they promise. And like addicts in denial, will always want more. And more just doesn't satisfy but God offers you true satisfaction. Look at verse four now. It says, God has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we see satisfaction here in that word inheritance, an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or, or fade. And this right here is, it, it's referring to Old Testament Israel's inheritance of the promised land, a land that, that they described as flowing with milk and honey, which sounds kind of weird to us, but for them, it was a way of describing a land that just deeply satisfied. But this promised land was not the true satisfaction. This promised land was just a pointer to something greater. It points to our dwelling in God's presence. The psalmist says to God, 
you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures. In other words, one day I will be satisfied and I won't have these frustrated cravings. I will be fully satisfied in God when I'm with him forever and I can even get a taste of it in this world today. See, the truth is God created you to be with him, to know him. And the truth is your heart will never, ever be satisfied until you experience the fullness of your relationship with him in his presence. And the problem is that none of us have the right to enter his presence. None of us. Only Jesus has the right. Only Jesus is, is worthy to enjoy the eternal pleasure found in perfect community with God. But through his resurrection, he gives us this satisfaction. I mean, it's amazing. So what difference does this make in our life today in the real world? My wife Shannon and I, we have been married for 25 years. And there's a photo of us there over 25 years ago. And like my kids, I'm much bigger now. We met back in 1986. I was 14 years old when we met. And over the years, Shannon has become my best friend. She's become the love of my life and, and a a way better wife than I deserve. I remember a time before uh, we had kids being totally gripped by fear. My fear of what if something happened to her? You know, what if, what if she died? And I, I imagined locking myself in the apartment and drinking myself to death because I was convinced that if Shannon died, I could not go on. And it, it, took, it took some time for me to shake that. So why was I so gripped with fear? Two things. First, I put my hope of satisfaction in Shannon. I was looking to her for my ultimate joy my ultimate pleasure in life instead of God. And second, you know, I used to think that my fear was irrational. But actually, if we put our hope uh, for ultimate joy and satisfaction in someone or something other than God, then of course the thought of losing that person naturally fills us with fear because then life will seem meaningless after that. God delivered me from that fear when I remembered that God himself is my true satisfaction. You know, I, I love Shannon with all of my heart. And if for some reason she goes before me, I will grieve deeply. I, I will grieve deeply. My heart will be broken. I will be a total wreck. But here's the promise. In the midst of my grief... And by God's grace, God promises me a deep joy 
to sustain me through that. He, he promises joy in spite of the tears when we know that true satisfaction is found in the Lord God Almighty who through the resurrection of Jesus has given himself to us. God is your true satisfaction. And you won't be satisfied by anything else until you know that God is your true satisfaction. Last, God gives you true security. We'll see that in a bit in verse 5. Every single one of us has a deep longing for security. We want control. We want strength. We want stability. We want to know that we're going to make it. And that's the problem. A, a lot of times we think, sure, you know, God makes these wonderful promises to us, and I believe that, that he will keep his pro- side of the deal. My problem is that I won't be able to, and I know I cannot live up to my end of the deal. Now listen, if that's where you are, I understand. I was blind to the good news. You know, I heard it on a regular basis from my parents. I still had this understanding, though, that my relationship with God depended on me keeping my end of the bargain. And I came to realize that I never could. So I went off the deep end. My attitude became, well, if it can't be good, I may as well enjoy being bad. And my life became far more empty than it ever was. But by God's grace, one day, he opened my eyes to the truth. And the truth is, no matter how good someone might seem to be, no one can be good enough to keep their end of the bargain. It turns out that all I or anyone else could ever do, all that we could ever earn was God's wrath, destruction in this life and the next, because God is a just God. And this bad news helped me see my need for grace. And this is the beginning of the good news. Whether you realize it right now or not, uh, this is the best news you've ever heard. God keeps your end of the bargain for you. That's the best news you'll ever hear. God keeps your end of the bargain for you. God lived. He lived up to your part of the deal for you. It is grace, and it is grace alone. Peter says in verse 4 and 5, Your inheritance kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It says that you are guarded by God's power, and he is a powerful God. He created the universe and holds it all together. You are guarded by God's power. That right there is your security. Your hope is not found in your strength, but in God's. And the same power that keeps your inheritance in heaven is the same power that keeps you secure now. 
If that was real to you, imagine how it would just totally transform the way that, that you live your life. You would be fearless, absolutely fearless. To the extent that you believe this, you will be filled with courage, no matter what life throws at you. So how can you have this significant this significance that we're talking about, this, this satisfaction that we're talking about, and this security? How can we have it? Well, it's a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God's grace. Again, verse 5 says that it is a gift that is received through faith. You receive this this holistic salvation through faith. And not just faith in general, but faith in the one who kept your part of the deal for you. See, according to, the, according to the Bible, did you know that your part of the deal, my part of the deal, involves obeying God 100% perfectly our whole entire lives with pure motives? That's our part of the deal. Every single one of us have totally failed. But God, in his great mercy, has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is our representative. And as our representative, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly with pure motives the way we should have but couldn't. And then Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus took the death that we should have gotten for, for our disobedience. He died in our place as our representative. That's what it means when I say Jesus died for you. And faith ultimately comes down to this. Faith ultimately comes down to where is your hope? Is your hope in Jesus? Is your hope in yourself or something else? If our hope is in ourselves, then God is left to righteously judge us based on our messed up record. We have not kept our part of the deal, and we're left to pay for our own sin. But if your hope is in Jesus, then God has already punished your sin on the cross. God has already declared you righteous. He has already declared you perfectly obedient, and nothing can change that. Because it doesn't depend on your performance, but Jesus's. And when you get that, it fills your heart with love and loyalty and a desire to glorify God and to live for him and follow him and obey him with your whole heart and with great joy. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the result. It all comes down to where is your hope? 
And if you say, I don't, I don't know, or, or if you are trusting in yourself, then, then, then I want to give you a loving diagnosis. It, it simply means that, that you're lost. And I, I want to be clear on that. But here's the solution. God says that can change for you. He calls you to transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus. If you trust yourself, you crash. You trust Jesus, you're saved. Trust in his perfect record. And I call you, I encourage you, I plead with you to do that this morning. And you can rejoice even in your various trials. Now, many of you are Christians and you've heard all of this before. You've trusted in Christ, but like me, a lot of times, you still act like it all depends on you. You need to create your own significance, your own satisfaction, your own security. And my encouragement to us all, and I preach to myself here, my encouragement to you is to remember where your hope really is. And I hope to keep reminding you of that. And I know that I'm going to need you all to keep reminding me of that. This is what we do for each other. This is how we preach the gospel to each other. We remind each other of who we are. God's children. And your hope is in Jesus. The risen Christ who rules and reigns as king who keeps your inheritance in heaven. And with the same power, he keeps you, and he will not let you go. So you are secure, you are significant, you are satisfied only in Christ because he kept your part of the bargain for you. This is your living hope. This is the good news. This is what changes your life and fills your heart with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so now you are free. You are free to proclaim with great joy the good news and the difference that it makes in every single area of your life to the glory of our King Jesus. This right here is what Easter is all about. This is what changes you. This is your living hope. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?